Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. This is Florida Matters, I'm Matthew Petty. State lawmakers start the legislative session soon. They'll be working alongside Ron DeSantis, the governor and presidential candidate, crafting new laws on education, the environment, business, and much more. Florida lawmakers in recent years have mostly fallen in line with DeSantis' agenda. However, one question hovering over the 2024 session, which begins January 9th, is how much support DeSantis will have. The governor is locked in a bruising presidential primary campaign with former President Donald Trump, and the two Florida men are dividing the loyalties of the state GOP. Just a few days after the session begins, Iowa Republicans hold caucuses to decide their party's nominee to take on President Biden. So just how much time can or will DeSantis expect to spend in Florida at this crucial moment in his political career? Today, we'll talk about how presidential politics might shape Florida's legislative session, We'll discuss the governor's budget request. We'll examine bills on the environment, child labor, education, health care, and talk about the continued consolidation of power in Tallahassee and what it means for residents in the greater Tampa Bay region. Well, Steve Newborn covers politics and the environment for WSF. Steve, thanks for being here. Glad to be here, Matthew. Also joined by political journalist William March. William, thank you. Oh, Glad to be here too, Matthew. And Jason Garcia, investigative journalist covering how business influences public policy in his Substack newsletter, Seeking Rents. Thank you, Jason. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, let's start with Governor Ron DeSantis' budget proposal. He's proposing $114.4 billion for 2024. It's about $4.5 billion less than this year's budget, something Governor DeSantis, a GOP presidential candidate, is touting as evidence of fiscal responsibility. William, what stands out for you about this budget proposal? It's a decrease from the past year, but what the governor doesn't mention is the past couple of years, the state budget's been largely inflated by federal aid. Mm -hmm. Florida got a total of more than $8 billion under the CARES Act, the Pandemic Stimulus Act. And if you look at the current budget, it is still a 31% increase from Governor Rick Scott's last budget, which he signed in 2018. The lost revenue from the federal stimulus will be partly made up by increased revenue from gambling under a deal with the Seminole Tribe that allows, for one thing, sports betting from anywhere in the state over the internet and casino games in tribal casinos. Mm -hmm. That's quite a departure for Florida too, isn't it, in some ways? Absolutely. And of course, it's been the subject of a lot of litigation over whether this constitutes a violation of the no expansion of gambling without a popular vote constitutional amendment. Right. Now, last session, we saw Republican lawmakers fall in line and give DeSantis pretty much what he wanted, pushing through legislation on homeowners insurance, oversight of Disney, and that's just to name a few. William, what's your sense of the level of support the governor might get for his agenda in 2024? Well, that's a really interesting question. As you noted, DeSantis, before declaring his presidential campaign, was considered a major presidential contender. The 
most likely challenger to Donald Trump for the nomination. And that had a lot of influence on his ability to dominate the legislature. You don't want to anger the guy who is not only a popular as a governor in his home state, but could get to be president. Now that he's declared his candidacy and his candidacy does not appear to be going as well as expected, the question is whether that will affect his standing with the other legislators. Now, the calendar is a big issue here. The legislature will meet for about 60 days from January 9th to March 8th. Now, during that period, first, as you noted, will be Iowa on January 15th. DeSantis hopes for second place there. Then on January 23rd, New Hampshire. Polls are suggesting that DeSantis will not do well in New Hampshire, fourth, maybe even fifth. And then South Carolina, February 4th, and that's 12 days before the end of the session. And in South Carolina, of course, he'll face the favorite daughter, Nikki Haley. The Florida primary itself is not until March 19th, Hmm. after the end of the session. So during the session itself, the legislators may not have hard, convincing evidence of exactly what DeSantis' national political stature is going to be. In addition to that, he's likely to be out of the state for much of the session campaigning in those early states. If he comes back to Florida as a loser, then it could easily affect the legislators' deference to his agenda. Jason, I want to bring you into this conversation. You've written quite a lot about how the Republican supermajority in the Florida legislature might operate in 2024, in particular House Bill 609 that would slash local business taxes. What does this mean for local governments and how does it kind of fit in with how power has been consolidated more in Tallahassee over recent years? Yeah, so one of the really interesting sort of powers the Republican Party of Florida gained when it got supermajority status in, in both chambers of the legislature is essentially the ability to cut their revenue sources and then leave locals to deal with the fallout from that, right? It's sort of a really dangerous situation when you think about it that a politician can cut someone else's taxes and then leave that person to figure out how to make up the revenue because that's either going to mean cutting services or raising taxes somewhere else, both of which are very unpopular, right? So one politician gets to eat the dessert and make the local politician eat the vegetables. Specifically to this business tax proposal, we've seen a bill filed in the legislature that would completely eliminate local business taxes, which are a substantial source of revenue, right? Economists just looked at this bill and concluded that's a $220 million hit that falls entirely on cities and counties in Florida. It doesn't affect the legislature's budget by a dime. And I think we're going to see more of that stuff because there's also proposals brewing to really cut the communications services tax, which are charged on things like cell phone and data plans. But again, that's a tax that the legislature can cut and make locals themselves deal with the fallout rather than cutting their own state tax. And it's part of a much larger, essentially, consolidation of power under state government. And I'll just give you one quick example. There will be a committee in the State House of Representatives that's about to take up this just breathtakingly anti-worker bill that would do three things, all geared around making it impossible for cities and counties to help workers. One provision of this bill would prevent cities and counties from requiring even their own contractors to pay living wages, which are basically a higher minimum wage that reflects the higher cost of living in a place like Miami or Tampa or Orlando. It would make those existing ordinances, which are on the books in at least a dozen cities and counties around Florida, it would invalidate them and allow government contractors to immediately cut the pay for tens of thousands of workers in Florida. 
That same bill would also prevent cities and counties from passing any kind of local law regulating the terms and conditions of employment in any way at all. So, for instance, that would prevent local laws like one that Orange County, the heart of the low-wage tourism industry in Florida, tried to pass a few years ago, requiring large employers to provide paid sick leave to their employees. It would even prevent Miami-Dade County from passing an ordinance to protect workers who work in high heat, extreme heat, like farm workers and construction workers. So all of this is part of a much larger pattern to just consolidate as much power in Tallahassee and allow the governor and state politicians to make decisions that affect employers in Florida. Jason, I want to ask you about some gun-related bills. Democrats have filed a slew of them. For example, HB 291, that's a bill put forward by South Florida Representative Christine Hunchovsky. This would require background checks on people involved in selling or transferring guns, rules around safe storage of firearms. What's your sense of the likelihood of further gun restrictions being passed this legislative session or the other way around? Could we see some loosening of rules that have only been around for three, four, five years? I think there is virtually no chance of any sort of gun safety restrictions passing this legislature, particularly with Ron DeSantis running in a Republican primary. Any sort of gun safety ideas are immediately dead on arrival in the Florida legislature right now. By the same token, I think there is a very high likelihood we'll see a continued loosening of gun laws in Florida. To give you a couple of examples, one of the first bills filed this session would essentially weaken mandatory waiting periods, allow people to to buy guns more quickly. I think you'll see a really big push for open carry again, which was an idea that gun rights activists have been pushing really hard. I think it is incredibly likely by the end of this legislative session, some sort of further loosening of gun laws in Florida will have passed. Steve, I want to turn to you now. Let's dig into the governor's proposed environmental spending this session. There's more money for the Everglades and shorelines, including $110 million for resiliency projects, $22 million for coral reef protection. I wonder what you make of that, especially given the challenges to the state's coral reefs last summer with record high ocean temperatures. Right. So the governor has proposed putting over $11 million into what's called the Coral Reef Restoration and Recovery Initiative. This has quite a lofty goal of restoring 25% of the state's coral reef by 2050. That's maybe a bridge too far as the the oceans continue to warm. Like you said, they reached record levels off the Florida Keys this Mm. summer. 101 degrees. That's hot tub weather. Yeah, we essentially saw emergency surgery being performed on these reefs, right? They had to relocate them to whatever the equivalent is for... uh, you know, the, the urgent care for, for coral reefs yeah. and keep them alive artificially. Coral triage, basically. So mm-hmm. you had scientists from places like Moat Marine Laboratory in Sarasota and the Florida Aquarium in Tampa. They started picking off what corals were left, the kind of the, the hardier ones, transported them on land into tanks in the Florida Keys. Now that the weather has cooled off, they're taking these hardier species and replanting them on the reef. Now, I gotta tell you, I went snorkeling off of Key West a couple of weeks ago during Thanksgiving, and it was striking to me. When I had been there like 20 years before, it was a kaleidoscope of color down there. Now, there's still plenty of colorful fish down there, but the reefs are bleached white. They're dead. They've expelled all the algae that keeps them alive, and it's just shocking. This is affecting tourism, it's affecting fisheries, it's affecting so many other things. So. Whether or not we can actually save what is the third largest coral reef in the entire world is a big question mark as the oceans continue to warm. 
There's also money for water quality projects, including algal bloom cleanup, $100 million for Florida Forever, and that's the state's conservation land acquisition program. Uh, What does that mean for conservation advocates and Floridians in general who benefit from clean water and access to these wild places? Right. That's the big question. You know, we've we've had a couple of these huge outbreaks of blue-green algae a couple of years ago coming out of Lake Okeechobee flowed to both coasts down the St. Lucie River to the Atlantic and the Caloosahatchee to uh, the Fort Myers area. It was a, just a huge blow to the state's image. It, it not only damaged tourism, it damaged fishing, it shut down seafood restaurants. You had this green goo lapping at these million-dollar homes along the coast and ended up killing seagrasses in the Indian River Lagoon that feed manatees. Mm. So it's just a real black eye for the state, and DeSantis and just about anybody else doesn't want to see that happen again. So they're going to do whatever they can to stem that. Now, red tide has been a big story in the Tampa Bay region generally. And for you, Steve, you've covered a lot of red tide stories in the last 12 months. I wonder if any of this money set aside for water quality issues could help alleviate our red tide problems. That's the big question. So red tide has been around since the Spanish first explored off the coast. It's aggravated by nutrients. So what we have is every time it rains, all that phosphorus and nitrogen from lawns and whatever goes down into creeks and into the bays and feeds this red tide. And what we saw a couple of years ago at Piney Point after 200 million gallons were dumped into the Tampa Bay, the biggest fish kill in the bay's history ever happened there. So the money they are doing, it's a lot of sewer upgrades, septic tank to sewer conversions, things like that. But it's going to take years. It's not something you could just wave a magic fiscal wand and say, this is going to fix the problem. Mm. It's going to take years and years. And I think we're going to have a lot more. Unfortunately, we're going to have a lot more of this happen in the future. Steve, have other lawmakers pitch bills, though, that could have a significant impact on the environment? Right. So there are bills to protect the spring sheds. Florida has the most magnitude one springs in the entire world. There's a... And what, just remind us what that is. It's the flow coming out of the springs, the force of the flow. So Mm. Florida has these incredibly forceful springs, mostly in North Florida, Central Florida. And what's been happening is algae has really taken over a lot of these used to be called gin clear springs because of all the the sewage, the, uh, the people on septic tanks near the spring sheds. There has been a proposal to put more than $55 million to improve water quality projects along the spring heads. You're listening to Florida Matters. We're talking about the upcoming legislative session. Still to come, how Governor DeSantis aims to address a teacher shortage and what a new health care bill means for Floridians. That's when we return. Welcome back to Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. We're talking about the upcoming legislative session. The 60-day session begins on January 9th, and among the bills that lawmakers will be debating, bills to increase the number of healthcare providers with the aim of diverting patients from emergency rooms. And Medicaid expansion is still off the table. There's also a bid to loosen child labour restrictions, a slew of education bills, and bills that continue a trend of consolidating power in Tallahassee. So let's get back to the conversation with political journalist William March, WUSF's politics and environment reporter Steve Newborn, and investigative journalist Jason Garcia. Let's talk about education. Some of the biggest pieces of legislation to pass in 2023 revolved around education. We saw the expansion of Florida's voucher system, allowing Floridians to subsidize the cost of private school if they choose to send their kids to a private school. William, already dozens of bills have been filed on education, including a bill that would make it easier for municipalities to take over public schools and convert them to charter schools 
On the other hand, you have the governor pushing for more money for public school teachers. Do you see the charter school, school choice movement continuing to grow in Florida over the next couple of months? Yes, I think the legislature and the governor are both devoted to what they call the school choice issue, which is diverting money from traditional public schools to charter schools and private schools through vouchers. The governor's education budget proposal does provide an increase for K-12 public schools, uh, about a 4% increase overall to $27.8 billion. But the figure that most people look at most of the time, the, probably the single most important figure, is the per-student funding, mm-hmm. and that increase is only 2%. And, of course, neither the 4% overall nor the 2% per student, neither of those keeps up with inflation. But at the same time, the governor wants to include some expenditures designed to appeal to his base million to pay teachers to go through a civics education training course that was designed by a conservative advocacy group. The $4,000 bonuses for military veterans and retired first responders who've become teachers. Mm. This Uh, this is trying to plug the teacher gap that seems to be widening, if anything. Yes, rather than hiring traditionally trained and educated teachers, retired service personnel and retired first responders are, are being invited to come in and fill the gap. The governor's proposal includes a $200 million year-over-year increase in funding to increase teacher pay. But the teachers' union says that's essentially still mainly close to a drop in the bucket, doesn't go nearly far enough, and they point out that Florida still, as of today, ranks 45th in the nation in starting teacher pay. On to the subject of health care, Senate President Catherine Pasadomo unveiled plans to increase access to health care for Floridians. Florida has one of the highest rates of residents without insurance in the United States, but Pasadomo told reporters earlier this month that Medicaid expansion is off the table. Jason, what do we know about this plan to expand access to health care and what's been the response, particularly from Democratic lawmakers? This healthcare package, it's pretty sweeping in the sense of it's really focused on essentially expanding the supply of medical providers. So a lot of it is built around, for instance, helping doctors and other medical providers who might be licensed in other states transfer to Florida seamlessly or expanding medical education or expanding what nurses are allowed to do, like prescribing, that sort of thing. There are some elements of it that are designed to steer people out of seeking emergency care, care in emergency rooms, which is the most expensive way to provide health care, usually because people are turning up once they're already sick rather than getting preventative care on the front end. So there's, um, for instance, some money in there to expand access to health clinics. But the reaction has been, generally speaking, that it doesn't really go as far as it can or should, particularly around Medicaid expansion. And I mean, the reality is Florida is the fourth worst state in the country in terms of the number of uninsured people. And that is entirely because it is one of only 10 states that refuses to expand health care under the Affordable Care Act. So there are hundreds of thousands of people in Florida that fall into this coverage gap, meaning they make too much to qualify for Medicaid under Florida's really strict rules for access to Medicaid, and they make too little to qualify for federal government subsidies on the federal health exchange because, again, states are supposed to be expanding Medicaid. 
The general feeling of this plan, particularly from Democrats, is that it does some good things, but it's a little bit like trying to put a Band-Aid on a decapitation, right? You're not really going to get at this problem until you get the hundreds of thousands of people in Florida who lack health insurance until you really help them get health insurance so they can start getting and paying for that preventative care that helps really bring down costs. I want to ask you about another bill, Jason. You've written about this on your website, House Bill 49, concerning child labor laws. Just remind us what that's all about. This is sort of one of the wilder themes that's developing of this session. Everybody knows the labor market is really tight, which is good for workers and leverage. One way businesses can combat a tight labor market is by raising pay and benefits to attract more workers. But what we're seeing in the Florida legislature is they want to weaken child labor protections to expand the labor pool with more teenagers, essentially. So House Bill 49 is the main bill that we're seeing in this regard. We've got records that show it was written by a far right-wing think tank that's funded in large part by a billionaire from Illinois. But this bill would essentially eliminate all restrictions on the hours that a 16 or 17-year-old could work. Essentially, a business could now make a, a high school sophomore work the exact same hours as an adult, even in school. This could be, they could work the overnight shift. They could work more than 40 hours in a work week, even while school's in session. But like I said, there's, it's not the only bill. We've also seen another bill that was written by lobbyists for the home building and construction contracting industries that would allow 16 and 17 year olds to start working in high risk jobs on top of roofs, building scaffoldings and superstructures. Right now, there are pretty strict limits on what minors can do in terms of dangerous occupations, and that legislation would start to weaken those as well. We're paying attention to that, no doubt. William, I want to ask you about calls for the chair of the Republican Party of Florida, Christian Ziegler, to step down, and for his wife, Bridget Ziegler, to resign from her position on the Sarasota School Board over a sex scandal. In fact, the school board has voted now to ask her to resign. What, if any, impact could this have on the GOP in Florida heading into this legislative session? The main thing, I suppose it is, is a general embarrassment to the party. Bridget Ziegler, who, as you just noted, the school board voted on Tuesday night unanimously. The four members other than her voted to ask her to resign. She refused to resign. Governor DeSantis and a small number of other Republicans have called on Christian Ziegler to resign as chairman of the party. One thing that this could potentially do is lessen the effectiveness of the Moms for Liberty organization, of which Bridget Ziegler was one of the founders, and it's become extremely active, a lot of membership nationwide over the last several months. And pretty influential in educational politics in Florida right. specifically too, right? Right, calling on school boards to make various moralistic changes in their approach, one Moms for Liberty chapter in another state has disaffiliated from the national organization because of this. And generally speaking, you'd have to say the organization has taken sort of a hit on its public image. Bridget Ziegler is a strong ally of Ron DeSantis, so is Moms for Liberty is a strong ally of Ron DeSantis. He endorsed her for her school board position. Christian Ziegler, as state party chairman, is required to remain neutral in the presidential primary. But at the time that he was elected, he was seen, at least by some, as the choice of Donald Trump. And what he said is that if Republicans don't want to call for Donald Trump to drop out of the presidential race because of the criminal charges he faces, then why should he, Ziegler, 
resign from his position when he hasn't even been charged. As we head into this legislative session in the early part of 2024, William, what else are you going to be paying attention to as that session unfolds? The big question is the one you raised earlier, the level of Ron DeSantis' influence over the legislature. If his presidential campaign falls apart and he has to come back to Florida sort of, you know, with his tail between his legs, that will greatly accelerate his lame duck status during the final two sessions next year and the year after that of his governorship. Other than that, I will be looking at A lot of the things Jason mentioned, continuing trend of more than 10 years of the legislature taking power away from municipalities and taking it for themselves, there will be a constitutional amendment voted on in the November ballot to make school board elections partisan. That's a bill that's desired by Republicans. If last year was the culture war session, this year is more of a session devoted to corporate interests and the influence of big donors. So I think we're going to see a lot of legislation going through that's pushed by industry interests and big corporate donors of the kind that Jason mentioned. Well, Jason, what's on your radar for the session? Along those lines, one of the things that I'm really paying attention to is just sort of how aggressively the governor and legislature embrace policies that transfer wealth upwards. And I'll just give you a couple of quick examples of what I mean by that. So On the one side, we have already seen, for instance, Republican legislators file a tax break for, and this is true, people who buy private jets. We also know that some of the world's biggest corporations like Anheuser-Busch, Comcast, and Disney have been lobbying for a massive corporate income tax cut that would save money for only the very largest 1% of businesses. But at the same time, we're seeing a lot of policies show up, in many cases pushed by some of these same interests that essentially criminalize poverty. And I'll just give you two examples of what I mean by that that we've seen so far. There has been legislation filed, and it is pushed by the Florida Retail Federation, which is essentially a front group for Walmart, Target, Home Depot, and a few other big box retailers, that could result in people being sent to prison for 15 years solely for stealing a few chocolate bars over the course of a year, right? It's designed to clamp down on shoplifting, but in a way that incredibly unnecessarily over-criminalizes and over-incarcerates for what are usually crimes of economic necessity rather than criminal intent and and completely nonviolent crimes, by the way. And similarly, we've just seen a bill filed that would essentially make it illegal to ask someone for money. It criminalizes panhandling in almost all sort of public spaces, And so all of this stuff really does tie together thematically, and I think that's what I'll be looking at, too. Steve, what are you going to be looking out for this session? There are bills both in the Florida Senate and House to create term limits for county commissioners. Right now, state lawmakers, the governor and cabinet all have eight-year term limits. A bill that was introduced in the state Senate by Blazing Golia of Hernando County would set two four-year limits for commissioners to put it more in line with the, with the rest of the elected officials out there. And the other thing is there is a proposal filed by uh, Representative Karen Gonzalez-Pittman, a Republican from Tampa, that would boost the Brightline passenger service. This is the high-speed rail that right now goes from Miami to mm-hmm. Orlando. And she would help pay for a connection from where it ends right now at Orlando to Tampa. This is something that was funded by President Obama over a decade ago and was nixed by then-Governor Rick Scott, who said it should be funded by private interest. Well, this might kind of go against that. So you got to remember that Tampa is still the largest metro area in the entire 
United States without any kind of passenger rail service. So that tram in Ebor City doesn't count? Doesn't count unless you, uh, you know, want to hop over to Ebor for a couple of drinks and get some cafe con leche. <laughs> We've been speaking with Steve Newborn, who covers politics and the environment for WUSF. Steve, thank you. My pleasure. Political journalist William March. William, thank you so much. Oh, enjoyed it. And investigative journalist Jason Garcia. Jason, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's our show for this week. Our producer is Steve Newborn. Production assistance from Mary Shedden. Engineering support for this episode from Blake Bass. Subscribe to Florida Matters wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find archived stories about all our episodes on our website, wusf.org. Tune to Florida Matters next Tuesday. We'll listen back to some of our favorite episodes from the year. I'm Matthew Petty. Happy holidays and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.